This year, the 500th anniversary commemorations of the Protestant Reformation culminate on Halloween, the 31st of October, which is the date when Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Except, of course, that he didn't. The story of the posting of the Theses is an imaginary event, first mentioned long after it was alleged to have happened, a convenient medical shorthand designed to encapsulate processes which were, in fact, a good deal more complicated and long drawn out. And here in England, we have our own Reformation myths. The memory of the break with Rome and everything that flowed from that is, of course, inextricably associated with the Tudor dynasty, and in particular the reign of Henry VIII, a king who was already being given larger-than-life mythical status in his own lifetime, not least in Holbein's unforgettable portraits and all their derivatives. <laughs> and the multiple forms of Tudor mythology remain big business. Tudor historical fiction is routinely near the top of the bookseller's charts, from C.J. Sansom's somber and often anachronistic whodunits, or Jean Plady's or Philippa Gregory's or Alison Weir's romantic romps. TV audiences a few years ago lapped up three series of Michael Hurst's preposterous bodice-ripping soap, The Tudors, even though the series cast diminutive, ageless, and gorgeously fey Irishmen as the gross and ghastly Henry VIII, <laughs> and appeared to construct its scripts by taking some of the facts and all the fallacies about the period, adding a generous serving of sex, shaking them all up in a box, and rearranging them into episode-length entertainment. <laughs> Rather more seriously, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies, the first two books in a projected trilogy by Dane Hilary Mantell, based on the career of the odious Tudor fixer Thomas Cromwell, have each won the Booker Prize, an unprecedented feat by any author for two consecutive novels. They've been dramatized brilliantly by Mike Poulton for hugely successful West End productions that went on to Broadway, and they were turned into a riveting six-part TV series starring <coughs> Mark Rylance. So the key players in the struggle for the soul of England in early Reformation England, Carver Woolsey, Thomas Cranmer, Thomas Cromwell, Thomas More, and of course, Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, have become almost as familiar as the stars of EastEnders or Coronation Street. And this fascination isn't new. The Tudor past has always loomed in the English imagination because the momentous repudiation of the Catholic past by three of the four Tudor monarchs was the determining fact of English politics for the next three centuries. And it fed an emerging sense of British identity which came to understand Catholicism as intrinsically alien, conveniently forgetting that Alfred the Great, Henry V, and Geoffrey Chaucer were all Catholics, and that the national shrine and the seat of the coronation, Westminster Abbey, was built by Henry III round the tomb of a papally canonized English king as a shrine for a relic of Christ's holy blood. Commemoration is always as much about the present as it is about the past. We mark some events and forget others, depending on how those events contribute to our own priorities, our sense of identity. Catholics remember the Reformation, I suppose, mainly for what it destroyed. Bare ruined choirs, where late the sweet birds sang. Protestants, for the benefits it brought. Predominantly, I suppose, access to an open Bible, symbolizing universal access to the truth without the intervention of priests, and quite possibly the single most important influence on the development of the English language. 
And in England, Protestants have traditionally remembered also the cost of Reformation and the sins of those uh, who opposed it. The memory of the reign of the Catholic Queen Mary, Bloody Mary, when the founding fathers of the Anglican Church were exiled or executed by burning alive, along with almost 300 other ordinary men and women, would become one of the building blocks of English identity. And, as recent events in Westminster have reminded us, the atavistic memories then created continue to play a role even in our increasingly secular age and our politics. And the fact is that just as soon as the history of the Tudor age began to be written, it was not only already being shaped by the struggle between Catholicism and Protestantism, but it was being fictionalized in the interests of one or the other. Which version of the fact or fiction you subscribe to depended on the religious preconceptions, both of those who wrote and those who read. Two great mutually contradictory books published in the reign of Elizabeth I shaped all subsequent tellings of the story of the Tudor Reformation. <coughs> the more famous is John Fox's Acts and Monuments, usually known as Fox's Book of Martyrs. Less well-known but equally influential was a book by the Catholic activist and political conspirator Nicholas Sander, who died who died trying to foment a rebellion in Ireland against the rule of Elizabeth I. Sanders' origin and progress of the Anglican schism was expanded by other hands and posthumously published in 1585. It was almost immediately translated into French, German, Italian, Portuguese, Polish and Spanish and it created the fundamental narrative of the English Reformation for European Catholics. You might say it created the Catholic myth of a reformation solely triggered by a tyrannical king's lust for a scheming courtesan. And some of Sanders' most effective moments were in fact blatant fiction. He's the source for the delicious, but I'm sorry to say, spurious claim that during Henry's reign, Archbishop Cranmer carried his German wife around with him hidden inside a padded box. And this ludicrous story has proved so long-lived and so irresistible that it found its way into a very memorable episode of Michael Hurst's The Tudors. <laughs> Fox's Acts and Monuments, with its stirring portrayal of Protestant heroism in the face of Catholic tyranny, is much better known. And it, in turn, set the agenda for all subsequent Protestant retellings of the Tudor story. Down to the Victorian era, and indeed beyond, most of the major historians of Tudor England followed Fox in admiring portraits of Anne Boleyn, Thomas Cranmer, and especially Thomas Cromwell, all of whom Fox thought were heroes of the early Protestant cause. It was only at the end of the 19th century that Cromwell began to get a consistently bad press. In a secularised form, that line was also followed by the greatest Victorian historian of Tudor England, one of the greatest ever, James Anthony Froude, who saw the Tudor age not so much as the dawning of the gospel light, but as laying the groundwork for the British Empire. So Froude justified even the most atrocious of the actions of Cromwell and Henry, uh, not in the name of the gospel, but of national progress. It was a, a pity, he thought, that great men like Thomas More had to be executed. But sadly, they were backward-looking obstacles to national progress, and so Henry had done what he had to do. You can't have omelettes without breaking the eggs. All this, of course, found expression in literature, and especially in drama. Victorian readers, in their hundreds of thousands, eagerly lapped up fictional retellings of the glories of the Reformation and the triumph of a Protestant nation against Catholic alien obscurantism. 
a, a religion whose fundamentally treacherous character was revealed in the Armada, what Tennyson called those Inquisition dogs and the devildoms of Spain. Uh, and that was fictionalized in best-selling novels like Kingsley's Westward Ho. But for the Victorians, the reign of Queen Mary and the burning of almost 300 Protestants had a special fascination which was reflected uh, both in fiction and in drama. So Harrison Ainsworth's dreadful and clunky novel, The Tower of London, was one of the best sellers of the 1840s, I mean, competing with the early Dickens and Brontes and, and so on, and outselling them. It focused on Protestant resistance to the regime of Mary Tudor, Wyatt's rebellion and the execution of the teenage Protestant nine-day queen, uh, Lady Jane Grey, whose decapitation in the final words of the novel removed one of the fairest and wisest heads that ever sat on human shoulders. A preposterous thing to say about somebody who was 18. A rather more interesting product of the 1840s was Aubrey de Vere's posthumously published verse drama, Mary Tudor, in which Queen Mary and Cardinal Poole are portrayed as reluctant persecutors, coerced into persecuting heroic Protestant bishops like Latimer, Ridley, and Cranmer by Mary's bloodthirsty, ultra-Orthodox Spanish husband, Philip, egged on by cynical turncoats like Bishop Stephen Gardner or Edmund Bonner. So far as I know, that play was never produced. It's over 300 pages long in the printed edition. But in 1876, Henry Irving and Ellen Terry took the lead roles as Philip and Mary in Alfred Tennyson's uh, sub-Shakespearean drama, Queen Mary. This relied for its history on Froude. It was intended, as Tennyson's son Han later explained, to dramatize the final downfall of Roman Catholicism in England and the dawning of a new age, for after the era of priestly domination comes the era of the freedom of the individual. In fact, Tennyson was drawn to some aspects of Catholicism, and his play isn't entirely unsympathetic to the Catholic Church. Tennyson portrays Cardinal Poole, for example, as a sensitive mystic, driven by a, a vision of the unity of the Church, and uh, he projects him as horrified by the burnings, which were the work of cruder men. This is historically not the case, I have to say, though it's a very common perception of Poole. This exoneration of the Cardinal didn't impress ultramontane Catholic reviewers at the time either. One of them dismissed Tennyson's Poole as an amiable dummy. Now, Victorian Protestant novelists and dramatists were drawing on a long anti-Catholic historiographical tradition that stretched back from Froude to Fox. But from the 1860s and 1870s onwards, Catholic historians, like the Redemptorist T.E. Bridget, the Jesuit John Morris, and the Benedictines Aidan Cardinal Gasquet and Don B. Cam, were producing what we might call alternative facts about the English Reformation, backed by editions of documents and historical studies of, uh, in the title of uh, Morris's most famous book, The Sufferings of Our Catholic Forefathers. <coughs> and that culminated in 1904 in the establishment of the Catholic Record Society, which devoted itself to the publication of a steady stream of documents illustrating the requisite period. And Catholic writers soon began to translate this material into fiction. The key figure here is Father Robert Hugh Benson, now largely a niche interest. Uh, he's read mainly, I think, by extreme right-wing American Catholics, though all his books are in print. He was the son of a notable Archbishop of Canterbury and uh, one of a remarkable family of writers. Um, in, in, brothers Eddie, who is the author of the Map and Lucia books, and his brother Arthur, who wrote Land of Hope and Glory and much else, edited Queen Victoria's 
letters. Hugh converted to Catholicism in 1903, an event which his family felt quite rightly made him smug and insufferably pontifical. <laughs> and he immediately began a stream of entertaining, though heavily didactic novels designed to present a Catholic version of the Tudor past. The first was published nine months after he became a Catholic in 1904. It's called By What Authority? And it's a tale of persecution and heroic Catholic endurance set during the 1570s and 1580s. It's fairly unreadable. It incorporates great slams from the trial of Edmund Campion and so on. And it's, um, it, it's not well done. Next came a better book, The King's Achievement, set in the 1530s and dealing with the dissolution of the monasteries. And it's notable for an idealized portrait of Thomas More's household in Chelsea. The Queen's Tragedy, published in 1906, deals with the reign of Queen Mary. And it's a very interesting, psychologically a very interesting book, uh, by no means uh, idealizing Mary. Uh, she's portrayed as a very tortured and unhappy figure. He was relying very heavily on Froude's interpretation of Mary. And the whole novel is seen through the eyes of a rather unsympathetic servant, Guy Manners, who is um, uh, only half loyal to Mary's vision of a Catholic England. So it's in fictional terms, it's quite an interesting book. But the best of Benson's historical novels is Come Rack, Come Rope, published in 1912, a complicated romance set against the background of the mission of Edmund Campion and the Babington plot to depose Elizabeth and uh, put Mary Queen of Scots on the throne. Robin Audrey and Marjorie Manners are the star-crossed Catholic lovers at the centre of the book. They're the children of Derbyshire recusant families and they've been betrothed since childhood. But in the face of mountain persecution, Robin feels a call to the priesthood. Marjorie heroically relinquishes him to his vocation. She toys with the idea of going abroad herself to join a convent, but eventually turns her ancestral home into a safe house for fugitive priests, complete with priest holes constructed by the Jesuit carpenter, St. Nicholas Owen. Robin departs for Reims, is ordained, and returns to a dangerous clandestine ministry in England, in the course of which he visits Mary Queen of Scots at Fotheringay. He's eventually arrested by his own father, who has conformed to Anglicanism out of cowardice. Robin is tortured by the sadistic pursuit of Richard Topcliffe, he's condemned for treason, and he's hand-drawn and quartered at Derby. On the scaffold, his final act is to absolve his now penitent and grief-stricken father, who's been brought to witness his son's martyrdom by the ever-faithful Marjorie. Not a dry eye in the house. Now, come rack, come rope was blatant denominational propaganda, like most of the books I've mentioned so far. Benson's novels do have some real psychological depth. They are not contemptible, I think. And he can surprise us. For example, in The Queen's Tragedy, as I said, where the portrayal of Mary has real uh, complexity. But in the 1950s, to skip on, and I'm passing over a whole series of books I would like to have talked about, but uh, for the sake of time, we move to the 1950s, and that saw the creation of two remarkable works on the Reformation, which have much higher literary qualities and which both, in fact, deserve the name Masterpiece. And the better known of these two masterpieces is Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons, which began life in 1954 as a radio clip. It was adapted for television in 1957, moved to the West End as a stage play in 1960, and finally became an Oscar-winning film in 1966 with Paul Schofield as Thomas More, Robert Shaw as Henry VIII, and the wonderful Leo McLean as Cromwell. 
And Bolt's play followed a long tradition in which Moore was idolized as the wisest and best man of his age, the urbane, kindly humanist whose home in Chelsea was a sunny idyll of learning and civilized values. That image originated in the memoir of Moore written by his son-in-law, William Roper. It had been given new academic respectability by an Anglican literary scholar, R.W. Chambers, in a beautiful but hagiographical life of Moore, which was published in 1935, the year of Moore's canonization. <coughs> Bolt drew heavily on Chambers' work. It was his main source. But he put his own spin on it. Bolt's Moore is not a martyr for the uh, faith of the Catholic Church. He's a 20th century liberal born before his time dying in defense of the rights of the individual conscience against any coercive regime. Bolt's play and the movie derived from it offered a seductive but radically misleading picture of Moore as a liberal humanist, individualist, concerned above all with personal integrity. Bolt's Moore declares at one point, I will not give in because I oppose it. I do, not my pride, not my spleen, not any of my other appetites, but I do. Now, the historical Moore did not, in fact, place this kind of absolute value on the individual's integrity. As a good medieval Catholic, he insisted on the primacy of objective truth, whatever the individual did or didn't believe about it. That was why he was so implacably opposed to heresy, and why in the, 19, in the 1520s, he became the most active agent in Henry and Wolsey's campaign against heresy and banned books, which Bolt totally ignores. And I'll have more to say about this uh, shortly. But whatever its historical shortcomings, Bolt's brilliant picture of Moore as the advocate of individual conscience caught the imagination of the culture. And it has been taken up even by those who should know better. On October the 31st, in Jubilee year 2000, Pope John Paul II proclaimed Thomas More patron saint of statesmen and politicians. As was customary, the Pope preached a homily on the occasion, which can be read on the Vatican website because it became an uh, apostolic letter of what appropriate, um, and it's there on the website. Some months before the event, that draft sermon stroke letter was sent to me via the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster for comment and correction. I was never told who had written the draft, but I assume it wasn't the Pope because I gather he's infallible and <laughs> this text was riddled with errors. The author was under the impression, for example, that Moore's favorite child and chief confidant was his son, John, rather than, as was the case, his beloved daughter, Margaret. But factual howlers apart, the most notable thing about the text was that stress is laid on Moore's belief in the sovereignty of conscience, just as in Bo's play. And it said not a single word about Moore's pursuit of heresy both as a polemicist, he wrote a million vitriolic words against the Reformation, and as the Crown's chief law officer and pursuivant. I wrote a detailed, urgently phrased commentary on the draft, pointing out the errors and urging the inclusion somewhere in the text of a frank admission of these unpalatable aspects of Moore's activities as a hammer of heretics. The howlers duly disappeared, and although the section on conscience wasn't drastically remodeled, it did at least now include a rather diplomatically vague allusion to Moore's uh, pursuit of heresy. The text now read, it was precisely in, the, on, in defense of the rights of conscience that the example of Thomas More shone brightly. It can be said that he demonstrated in a singular way the value of a moral conscience, which is the witness of God himself, 
whose voice and judgment penetrate the depths of man's soul. That's a quotation from Veritatis Splendor. Even if, and this is the significant qualification, even if, in his actions against heretics, he reflected the limits of the culture of his own time. <laughs> now, Catholics have gone on pushing this view of Moore as an icon of tolerance. This is a prayer card issued by the American hierarchy in 2012. But as we've seen, that kind of claim about Moore is problematic, and I'll have more to say about that in a moment. Now, the other great work of art dealing with the Reformation to appear in the 1950s is much less well known. It was a blockbuster, two-volume novel, 700 pages, entitled The Man on a Donkey, <coughs> published in 1952. It deals with the dissolution of the monasteries and the series of rebellions in northern England that the dissolution triggered in 1536 and 1537, and known collectively as the Pilgrimage of Grace. It was the work of an Oxford-trained historian, Hilda Prescott, who was best known, if known at all, for a prize-winning biography of Mary Tudor. It, it won the James Black Tate Memorial Award in 1941, and it's a fine book. The Man on a Donkey has been largely ignored in literary accounts of the 20th century English novel. But I don't think I'm alone in believing it to be one of the greatest historical novels in English or any other language. I, I don't think it's absurd to mention it alongside the work of great masters of the genre like Scott, Manzoni, or Tolstoy. It's written in the form of a series of parallel chronicles tracing the history of five key characters. Uh, four of them real historical personages, um, others invented over the 30 years leading up to the outbreak of the pilgrimage. At the heart of the book is the figure of Robert Ast, the ebullient, one-eyed Yorkshire lawyer who was initially coerced into leadership of the Lincolnshire Rising in 1536. Uh, he was captured by a mob who forced him to become their leader but he became the grand captain of the pilgrimage, and he was eventually excruciatingly executed by hanging in chains till he died of exposure and starvation in York in 1537. Alongside Ask, the novel has four other central characters. Thomas Lord Darcy, the devoutly conservative northern grandee, who, like Ask, had become a reluctant participant in the pilgrimage, but came to see it as a crusade in defense of ancient decencies, and he was also executed by beheading in 1537. Christabel Cooper is another real historical person, but fleshed out by Prescott. She's the worldly and scheming last prioress of the Benedictine Priory at Marrick, which is near Richmond. Her struggles to save Marrick Priory and her own dominance there is cleverly echoes in the novel the larger ambitions of Thomas Cromwell and Henry VIII, in whom she very misguidedly puts her trust. Another female character is Julian Savage, hopelessly in love with Ask. She's one of the two bastard daughters of Edward Stafford, Duke of Buckingham, executed by Henry in 1521. And finally, there's Gilbert or Gib Dore, a married peasant turned priest, whose angry embitterment at his own uh, poverty leads him to embrace an apocalyptic and denunciatory version of the Protestant gospel. And then in addition, weaving through the story are the gnomic utterances of a mysterious female visionary, an idiot serving woman named Ma, uh, sold to the nuns at Marek as a mermaid uh, early on in the book whose pacifist visions of Jesus Christ, the man on a donkey, glimpsed in and about Marek and the surrounding dales, provide a mystical commentary on the violent upheavals which are the main thread of the story. And that story is framed 
as if in an illuminated book of hours, by a series of lyrical descriptions of the changing seasons and the works, the routine labors of the rural year. And that sets the doomed uh, tragedy of the pilgrimage into a grander and more hopeful natural context. Formally, Prescott's novel is genuinely innovative. It's written in hundreds of often very short sections, which cut backwards and forwards cinematically between the main characters. The novel opens in 1509 and works slowly and inexorably uh, towards the climax of the pilgrimage and the novel's harrowing end. And it concentrates on building up tremendously three-dimensional sense of each of the main characters and the way in which their story weaves together. Now, Hilda Prescott was a first-rate professional historian. She attached a bibliography of historical sources at the end of the novel. And her portrayal of historical characters like Ast and Darcy, though slightly romanticized, especially in the case of Ast, stick very close to the documented facts. She was also a devout Anglican. She accepted the truth of the Protestant gospel. She entertained no illusions about the standard of Tudor monastic life. Almost all the monks and nuns who appear in her book, and there are many of them, are like Christabel Cooper, worldly and spiritually mediocre. But she manages to convey the tragedy and betrayals of the dissolution without romanticizing the institutions that were dissolved. Readers of Don David Knoll's magisterial study of the dissolution, which appeared seven years later in the same decade, uh, the third volume of his History of the Religious Orders in England, would have recognized the fundamental accuracy of Prescott's portrayal of life at Marrick Priory. And despite her own Anglican convictions, Prescott explored the conservative religious beliefs of the Catholics, Ast and Darcy, with profound insight and sympathy, even though one of the novel's themes is the incompatibility of resort to violence with the gospel of Christ, the man on the donkey. Prescott's novel has its flaws, the gnomic mystical utterances of the mystic moral. There is darkness, and God moving nigh hand in the darkness. Sometimes uncomfortably reminiscent of Stella Gibbons's, there's something nasty in the woodshed. <laughs> but in its combination of historical accuracy with vivid, complex characterization, cumulative narrative power, and imaginative empathy, it seems to me to represent the high point of fictional treatments of the Tudor Reformations. Prescott's take on the history of the period was learned and accurate, but it wasn't revisionist. Her presentation of both King Henry and his chief minister, Thomas Cromwell, was conventionally negative and hostile. Uh, Cromwell, in her book, is highly able, superficially charming, but beneath the charm is corrupt, greedy, cynical, ruthless and cruel. It's the picture of Cromwell's character which had been promoted in the standard biography uh, by the Harvard historian Robert Merriman in 1902. And though it's handled much more three-dimensionally, in all essential, Prescott's Cromwell is exactly like Hugh Benson's Cromwell in The King's Achievement. And indeed, it's, it's the kind of portrayal of Cromwell you find in a lot of these Tudor novels. So I'm thinking of something like uh, Alison MacLeod, a very interesting writer who was a, a Marxist. She was a journalist for the uh, Daily Worker and left the Communist Party after the Hungarian invasion. She wrote a novel about um, this period uh, called The Tudor Servant. And Cromwell is very like the Cromwell of Man on a Donkey. But even as Prescott wrote, the framework of Tudor history was being revised in ways which would profoundly affect fictional portrayals of the period. From the late 1940s onwards, the, oh, sorry, that's the banner of the Pilgrimage of Grace, marvelous object. 
From the late 1940s onwards, the Cambridge historian Geoffrey Elton was turning out a series of groundbreaking studies of Henrich in England, which placed Cromwell center stage as a principled modernizer, not corrupt, but intent on reforming both church and state, an administrative genius who was the mastermind of a Tudor revolution in government. And in 1959, the Hull-based historian Geoffrey Dickens, A.G. Dickens, published a short biography of Cromwell, claiming him not only as a principled and patriotic administrator and a genius, but a devoutly committed evangelical, the protector and promoter of England's earliest Protestants, whose greatest and most enduring achievement would be the Great Bible, uh, issued in 1538. So Dickens, and especially Elton's new take on Cromwell, quickly established itself. And in 1968, Elton's robustly Catholic pupil, his first pupil, Jack Starrisbrick, endorsed the new consensus in his marvelous biography of Henry. So here's Scarisbrick. Far from being a ruthless Machiavellian of legend, Cromwell was a man possessed of a high concept of the state and national sovereignty and a deep concern for parliament and the law, an administrative genius, one who may have lacked profound religious sense, though instinctively favorable to some sort of Erasmian Protestantism but something of an idealist, nevertheless. That the 1530s were a decisive decade in English history is due largely to his energy and vision. But Elton had not only initiated a rethink about Cromwell, partly in direct reaction to Bolt's anachronistic secular canonization of Moore, Elton turned his formidable uh, talents to a deconstruction of Moore's reputation. In a series of debunking essays spread over 30 years, he argued that Moore had spent four, what he called, idiot years trying to be a monk of the Charter House, and having opted instead for marriage, spent the rest of his life struggling with a sense of moral and religious failure. Elton's Moore is a repressed sex maniac unable to shake off the conviction that he'd failed to live up to what he regarded as God's ultimate demand on man, namely celibacy. That was the explanation, Elton thought, not only of Moore's morbid self-flagellation and the wearing of a hair shirt, but also the tone of his writings against the Reformation. In Elton's words, endless, nearly always tedious, passionate, devoid of humor, markedly obsessive a display of what Elton called helpless fury, which he thought was rooted in Moore's own misanthropic pessimism and above all, his unresolved, morbid sexuality. And there, in a nutshell, is the prospectus for the characters of Cromwell and Moore as they're represented in Wolf Hall. And it's to Mantell's superb but troubling novels I want to turn now. In the Frick collection in New York, two portraits face each other across the same room. This incidentally is not that room. Uh, there's a fireplace in between them and I couldn't find a slide that showed them both. Uh, so this was uh, taken at an exhibition where they were on display. And these two portraits provide Holbein's eyewitness, unblinking analysis of the personalities of the two most famous laymen in Henry VIII's England. More sensitive, self-questioning, far-sighted, and Cromwell, the ultimate bureaucrat, cold, calculating, his little expressionless pebble eyes, watchful, his desk littered with paperwork. But the portrait of the two men in Wolf Hall reverses the verdict implicit in Holbein's devastatingly revealing pictures. For the wise, kindly, fundamentally decent hero of the Wolf Hall trilogy, unfinished, is amazingly not more, but Cromwell. 
In Mark Rylance's portrayal, Cromwell is even made to look like Holbein's Moor, rather than Holbein's Cromwell. While Mantell's Moor, on TV played by Anton Lesser, is a joyless Puritan, a man whose social charm is mentioned, but never enacted on stage. Instead, we see a man whose cruel humour masks self-loathing and steely religious bigotry. Wolf Hall's Moore is a sneering misogynist. He specialises in humiliating the women in his household who are all afraid of him. He's a religious fanatic, flogging himself in a fear-driven piety, obsessively writing vitriolic, obscene, polemical books, implacably hunting down defenceless Protestants, imprisoning and torturing them in his own cellar, relentlessly questioning themselves, questioning them while they're on the rack, and sending his victims to the stake, so broken by suffering that they have to be carried to their burning in chairs. Far from being the innocent victim of a cruel regime, the Moor of Wolfhall is a calculating schemer, treated far better than he deserves. After his arrest, his successor as Lord Chancellor, Thomas Audley, who would ultimately pronounce the death sentence on him, assures Moore that he will not be tortured. He tells him, we spare you the methods that you used on others. And in the novels, all Moore's recorded actions are interpreted hostilely. To take one example, when his first wife, Joan, died, Moore, who was a busy lawyer and a rising politician, was left with five children, all under the age of six. To provide them with the care they needed, he married again within a matter of months, choosing, as a wife, the motherly widow of a city merchant who was several years older than himself. In Wolf Hall, this sensible and pragmatic move becomes evidence of Moore's self-loathing inability to live without sex. When Moore's first wife died, the voice of the narrator records, her successor was in the house before the corpse was cold. Human flesh called him with its inconvenient demands. But if you're so lenient with yourself as to insist on living with a woman, then for the sake of your soul, you should make it a woman you don't really like. Now, when all allowance is made for the conventions of fiction, it's pretty obvious that the author of Wolf Hall detests the historical Moore. And certainly Moore's views on the limits of liberty of conscience are pretty difficult for any 21st century person to understand or sympathize with. I'm not going to go into it now. I've devoted some chapters of my most recent book to this. But in the 1530s, Moore wrote thousands of pages, a million words, of ferocious polemic against the Reformation and the Reformers, books in which he defended the execution of stubborn or relapsed heretics in language whose violence now must make even his most ardent admirers quail, you know, the devil's stinking martyrs, that sort of rhetoric. And in keeping with those fierce sentiments, over the previous 10 years, Moore, as part of Henry and Woolsey's campaign against heresy, led a series of nocturnal raids on London houses and warehouses to suppress the trade in banned Protestant books, and he did interrogate suspects in his own house in Chelsea. Wolf Hall dramatizes the rumors current in Moore's own day that he'd not only hunted, but had tortured these prisoners. And in a flashback in Bring Up the Bodies, he's portrayed actually questioning the evangelical barrister James Raynham on the rack. And the claim that Moore was a torturer is now widely accepted as true, not least because of its prominence in these novels. But in fact, we can be quite certain that all such claims about Moore and torture are false. Whatever else he was or wasn't, Moore was a truthful man. He died rather than subscribe the oath of supremacy. All but one of the Tudor bishops most of the monks, priests, and every head of a household in England took that oath. Even Moore's daughter, Meg, took it. But he refused 
and was executed for refusing because he wouldn't swear to a lie. So we can believe him when in 1533 he solemnly swore that he had never tortured anyone. In the Apology of Sir Thomas More, which was published just before he was arrested, he specifically and in detail denied each of the charges of torture and maltreatment of Protestant suspects, which are dramatized in Wolf Hall. Of all that ever came into my hands for heresy, he wrote, so help me God, never had any of them any stripe or stroke given them so much as a flip on the forehead. Nothing could be clearer. Nevertheless, these same accusations, which were revived and elaborated by John Fox, are central to Mantell's portrait of Moore. By contrast, Mantell's Cromwell is an omnicompetent, benign superman. He's a social and religious reformer, a sincere supporter of the Reformation, who nevertheless shies away from the fanatical enthusiasm of people like Tyndall or Bilney. He's a kind of secular saint whose humane attitudes foreshadow those of the 21st century. He's a financial and administrative wizard, a Renaissance lover of books and visual arts, a polyglot linguist, fluent in French, Italian, German, Flemish, Spanish, and Welsh. He can't be found on the afternoon of his wife's death of the plague because he's busy learning Polish. His household at Austin Friars outdoes Moore's Chelsea. It's a paradise of religious toleration where European scholars of every persuasion find patronage and shelter. It's a home for waifs rescued from the streets, whose kitchens turn out industrial quantities of soup and herrings to feed hundreds of paupers daily at the door. Its rooms and passageways echo to music and the laughter of charming flocks, quote, of merry children rescued from the cloister. Cromwell himself is not only a doting parent and foster parent, I love you son, but a benign local godfather, sorting out the parish's problems for the neighbours who flock to ask for his help. Even his skin has supernatural properties. When at the start of bring up the bodies, the entire court goes out hunting in the blazing sunshine without hats because King Henry has lost his, everyone from the king down gets badly sunburned, but not Cromwell, whose sallow skin is mysteriously immune. Now, sunburn apart, some of this does have warrant in the historical record. Cromwell's competence and political skills, of course, need no comment. His history before 1520 is largely unrecorded, but he was a soldier of fortune in Italy. He had a spell in the French army. He worked for the Frescobaldi banking family in Venice, and he was a cloth merchant in the Low Countries. But the historical Cromwell was definitely not a benign neighborhood Mr. Nice sorting out people's problems. The evidence suggests that he was, in fact, the neighbor from hell, brazenly encroaching on his uh, outraged neighbor's boundaries to enlarge his own property at Austin Friars. The London antiquary John Stowe, for example, reports that Cromwell had gone so far as to put one house that he thought was blocking his view in Throckmorton Street on rollers and moved it without consultation 22 feet into Stowe's father's garden. More seriously, Cromwell's outrage at Moore's alleged cruelty simply can't be squared with Cromwell's own record. If we can be reasonably sure that Moore was not a torturer, we can be absolutely certain that Cromwell was. Among all the spiritual mediocrity of the religious orders Cromwell dissolved, the English Carthusians stand out as exemplary exceptions. Their houses were full of, living, of men living austere, devoted lives. There was a waiting list for cells at the Mount Grace Charter House. Even Cromwell's commissioners could not find fault with them. So, perhaps unsurprisingly, it was the Carthusians who virtually alone made a principal stand against the new doctrine of the king's spiritual supremacy. And Cromwell saw to it that they were savagely punished. Three of their leaders, including John Horton, 
prior of the London Charter House in which Moore had tested his vocation, were convicted of high treason by a London jury, extremely reluctant to convict, but who were pressured by Cromwell into doing so. The monks were hanged, drawn and quartered, still wearing their monastic habits at Tyburn in May 1535. They were all wearing hair shirts and that made the slitting up of their bellies. Uh, they had to be hacked open while they were conscious. And the hangman was specifically instructed to prolong their sufferings as much as possible as a warning to others. Three more monks, this is a, a print from the uh, 1550s, uh, made in Rome, uh, of the martyrdoms. Three more monks were similarly, and this is a, a early 17th century German set of paintings of it. Three more monks were similarly butchered the following month. Now public reaction to this unprecedented treatment of exemplary religious in their habits was very unfavorable, both in England and beyond. It caused a, a European scandal. So Cromwell decided not to repeat the experiment. This is uh, Zorbaran's marvelous uh, painting of St. Uh, John Hawke. After two years of relentless harassment, 10 more members of the London Charter House, who were still refusing the oath, were sent to Newgate without trial. They were chained upright to posts with their hands behind their backs and left to die in their own filth. Moore's adopted, this is a, an idealized picture of that, Moore's adopted daughter, Margaret Giggs, tried to help them. She disguised herself as a milkmaid, went in and cleaned the excrement from round them, and fed them with meat which she'd smuggled in in a milk pail. But she was discovered, and all but one of the ten starved to death. The savagery with which the Carthusians were treated was attributable to Henry's own relentless intolerance of opposition. But it was Cromwell who managed the process. The appalling death of the disemboweled and starved Carthusians is vividly evoked both in Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. In one scene, Cromwell reflects with grim relish on the sufferings they will endure. It's the most horrible of all deaths. Pain and rage and humiliation swallowed to the dregs before each one dies. He crawls like an animal round and round on the bloody boards. But he excuses himself. These recalcitrant monks are traitors. They deserve what they get. He has spoken gently, Cromwell muses. He has spoken bluntly. He has threatened and cajoled. It's all to no avail. Their response is, go away, go away and leave me to my sanctified death. In other words, they've chosen this for themselves. All they had to do to avoid it was swear away their integrity. In these circumstances, Cromwell's reproach to Moore at the end of the novel, I would have left you, you know, to live out your life to repent of your butcheries if I were king, has a hollow ring. In the fourth brief lecture, which she gave on Tuesday, Dame Hillary said, the reason the novelist must stick to the truth is that it is better, stronger than anything you can make up. You can select, elide, highlight, omit. Just don't cheat. I wonder if in her portrayal of Cromwell as abhorring torture, she has followed her own advice. Now, Mantel's extraordinary achievement in scooping the Booker Prize twice, together with the immense and deserved popularity of the plays and TV series her books generated, have given her fictional treatment of the Henrician Reformation a special kind of status, which I think other historical novels have not achieved. As I've just mentioned, she's currently the BBC's Reef Lecturer, and she's taken the relationship between historical truth and historical research on the one hand, and historical fiction on the other, as the theme of the lectures. Now, it must be said here that 
she's been very clear that her version of the period is, in the end, imaginative fiction. She's reminded critics that a novelist is not on oath when writing about the past. She's allowed to make things up. And she's also pointed out that almost all the references to Moore's cruelty in the books are in reported speech. That is, they're what Moore's enemies think about him, not necessarily what she believes. All the same, her obvious immersion in the sources of the period and her insistence in the Reef Lectures that historical fiction can offer valid insights into the motivation and character of the people of the past raise difficult questions about the boundaries between fiction and faction. Her choice of topic as Reef Lecturer is itself evidence of the ambiguous claims and the impact on public perception of the past of her kind of writing. Her striking claim that history is not the past, it's our way of organizing our ignorance of the past, brings historical writing and historical fiction dangerously close. But the vividness of her characters, their close derivation from contemporary Tudor sources, and their prime time exposure on TV means that her fiction is being taken for fact and the distinction blurred. The best and most judicious recent writer on Thomas More, Professor John Guy, complained at this year's Hay Festival of interviewing candidates for places to read Tudor history at Cambridge, whose knowledge of the period came exclusively from watching Wolf <coughs> on television. David Starkey, characteristically, has been more trenchant. We really must stop taking historical novelists seriously as historians, he said. The idea that they have authority is ludicrous. They're very good at imagining character. It's, what, it's why the novels sell. They've no authority when it comes to handling historical sources. Full stop. I wouldn't dream of commenting on Hilary Mantel as a novelist. Frankly, I'd be grateful if she stayed off my patch as a historian. She's intelligent. She's bright. She's an admirable writer. I happen to find her Tudor novels unreadable. But that's because I'm a Tudor historian. <laughs> All the same. Her hostile take on Moore and the causes he defended have become gospel for a high proportion of the chattering classes, partly, I think, because they chime with a plunge in the church's reputation because of the sexual abuse scandals. One example. On February the 6th, 2015, the Reverend Dr. Giles Fraser devoted his column in The Guardian to a discussion of religious violence. He called the article, or the, the uh, copy editors, called the article From Moore to Isis. And the theme of the article was that it was a moot point whether Moore was a monster or a saint, because, as Hilary Mantel has reminded us, he was personally responsible for the burning of men who questioned the authority of the Roman Church, and specifically James Raynham, whom Moore tortured. Uh, in the tower and then had burnt. And he cited in evidence that week's episode of Wolf Hall. Now, Dame Hillary would indignantly reject any suggestion that her book stands in a long line of Protestant fictions. But she is herself an ex-Catholic who has famously said, I am one of nature's Protestants. I should never have been brought up as a Catholic. I think that nowadays the Catholic Church is not an institution for respectable people. One can only say thank God for that. <laughs> Warhol is a very fine historical novel indeed. But in my view, its most brilliant achievement is not the reversal of the roles of Moore and Cromwell, which I think ultimately fails the test of fictional as well as historical plausibility. The more of Wolf Hall seems to me to be a gargoyle without redeeming features, simply too awful to be squared with what those who knew him most intimately, from Erasmus down to his most intimate relatives. Uh, you can't square it with what they thought about him. As a result, in Wolf Hall, he never becomes a three-dimensional character. 
he's his boom bad. Faction here defeats fiction. Interestingly, in the television version, Anton Less's extraordinarily poignant portrayal of Moore's final days in the tower did have enormous dignity and pathos. And I think they helped to give the character a depth which I don't find in the novels themselves. The novel's real triumph is Mantel's funny, insightful, and tragic portrayal of Cardinal Wolsey and the tender relationship between the Cardinal and his most faithful servant, Cromwell. Wolsey is Wolf Hall's most vivid creation, and Cromwell's loyalty to Wolsey is the force that drives the plot both of Wolf Hall and bring up the bodies, because revenge against those who brought Wolsey down becomes the key to Cromwell's otherwise morally loathsome destruction of Anne Boleyn and her supposed lovers. We will have to wait a year or two for the third volume to see whether the completed trilogy can approach the stature of the man on the dock.